This is the BC Messenger Podcast, and we sure welcome you this month, June 2023. This is episode number 11 of Real Science, Real Bible, Real History, and Real World. And it is June. That means it's summertime, and it means it's gardening season. And our family has just begun to see the beautiful green shoots springing up in our newly planted garden this year. Yeah, we have enjoyed gardening the past few years, and we just had our crew out at the garden this morning early, uh, checking on the bean plants coming up, and the kids were going down the row counting how many they could see coming up compared to how many there were uh, last evening. So it's an exciting time to see all the green springing up out of the barren earth. So many lessons you can learn from gardening. That's not the topic of our podcast today. But, you know, as we plant seeds in the earth, we are reminded of all that can come forth from small things, from a small seed. As Christians, we are laboring to plant seeds of truth wherever God has called us, trusting Him to continue to bring forth a great harvest in His own time A small seed of truth is alive, and it's powerful because all truth is God's truth. And so even if it seems insignificant, inert, crazy, going nowhere, doing nothing, or even if it seems crazy, if it's truth, um, we know that God is going to do great things with us as we plant in obedience to him. Amen to that. And boy, we have just jumped right into it today, haven't we? I know. This is great. We didn't even really introduce ourselves. No. Uh, I'm Steve Hall, my wife, Jennifer Hall, and we are glad you're here. Yes, and we just feel like all of our listeners are old friends. Old friends. Really, we enjoy hearing from you guys and meeting you along the way. So here's a rundown of the content we're going to be exploring today. If you get the email, you will have the show notes there on the link and photos, links, different visuals that will help you as we go through the content, or if you want to go back and check it out later, our monthly roundup of content from the Biblical Chronologist. We have, first of all, our featured topic, which Steve is going to share with us, location of the Biblical Rephidim. And then we have a new video Steve has just produced about the location of the True Mount Sinai. We will be talking about a product from the Biblical Chronologist, um, time charts, and we'll get into that. Then we have Aging 101, talking um, about some more vitamin deficiency diseases in history and what we can learn from that in light of aging. We have a question, I've got questions, a very common question that pertains to the aging research, kind of on the theology side of things. And a quick quote of note, and then wrapping up with Helen's view, she wants to share um, an article that was published in a local paper here in central Illinois. So uh, quite a variety of content, and we're ready to get going. All right. So Dr. Ardsma has recently identified the archaeological site that is the biblical Rephidim. Now, that may not mean much to you right off the bat. You may wonder, what in the world is that? Why should that matter? But as I get into this, I think you'll begin to recognize some things about Rephidim, what it was, what was so significant about it. It is a stop on the Israelites' journey and route from Egypt to Sinai. The unique details of this specific site help us to understand much more about the biblical account And once again, to stand in awe of God and of his works 
in history. So what I want to do today is begin with an exciting Bible story. Let's pretend that we are in Sunday school. Oh, um, I love Sunday school. Yes. And we all remember many stories that we were told out of the Bible, accounts that happened uh, that are recorded for us in Scripture. Well, what happened at a place called Rephidim? Israel has come out of Egypt. They have seen God lead them through the wilderness, and they have seen the Lord destroy their enemies in the Red or the Reed Sea. And now they are, unbeknownst to them as of yet, they're on their way to Mount Sinai. This massive group of people, millions (laughs) have made various stops along their journey, and just before arriving at Mount Sinai, they arrive at a location that the Bible calls Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17. Now, at this location at Rephidim, this is where the people begin to quarrel with Moses about the fact that they have no water to drink. We all remember that from these biblical accounts of the Israelites complaining and murmuring, and this becomes somewhat of of a habit And God does eventually judge them for it, greatly judge them. But they begin to ask Moses why he's brought them up out of Egypt just to kill them all with thirst in the wilderness, along with their children. It's easy to criticize the Israelites and say, oh, they just complained, complained, complained. But the work that Dr. Ardsma has done on the route of the Exodus shows where these folks were traveling and the extent of it and the terrain. And you put yourself in their shoes with their little ones and their families and all this livestock and in the central Negev and having traveled days or an extensive day to get from one site to the next only to find there's no water. We can see that God really was putting these people to a very severe test. He was, and yet he was providing for them. Right. And it, But yet it would have taken faith for them to believe and trust God, and he's showing them that he will provide. But at this point, according to Moses, some of the people were so angry they were ready to stone him. Uh, Moses himself says that in Exodus chapter 17. But then God tells Moses to do a very strange thing. This is often the fingerprint of God, is it not? That uh, in our eyes, we're thinking, Lord, do what? Well, what does God tell Moses to do? He tells him to take his staff. Now, we often associate Moses with his staff, don't we? With the rod that he has in his hand. And here, once again, God tells Moses to take his staff and go do something with it. This is the same staff that he struck the Nile River with back in Egypt, and God turned the water to blood. He tells him, take your staff to a certain place. And then God says this, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you, Moses, shall strike the rock, hit it, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now, some of you probably are thinking, oh, okay, that's the story. Yeah, I've heard that before. Well, it was at Rephidim that this event took place. So Moses does what God said while all the elders of Israel are looking on. And when he did this, water came out of the rock for the Israelites to drink. An amazing account. Now, that's not all. Immediately following this event in Exodus chapter 17, let's see if you're familiar with this story. We see now that a group of people come out to fight against Israel. They're called the Amalekites. They come out to battle against Israel at this place called Rephidim. Moses commands Joshua to gather an army of men to fight. And while 
he does that, Moses is going to station himself on the top of a hill, again, with the staff of God in his hand. So Joshua does what Moses says, and two men then accompany Moses to the top of the hill. Their names are Aaron and Hur. Aaron and Hur. Now, now let me make it clear that Hur is not a preferred pronoun. That actually <laughs> is the name of this individual. It's called H-U-R, so I just want to make that clear. Aaron and Hur accompany Moses to the top of the hill. The Bible tells us that when Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek or the Amalekites prevailed. Now, again, you may be saying, oh, yeah, I remember that story. I remember Moses hearing about that. Moses holding up his hands. That's right. right. So you may not have realized this happened at Rephidim, and it happened probably very quickly after the account of the water coming. They weren't in these locations all that long. Aaron and Hur steadied his hands, and Israel defeats the Amalekites. Then Moses builds an altar to the Lord in this place. So there's another event that takes place in Rephidim. Now, the third thing that takes place in Rephidim that transpires here is the arrival of Jethro. And this is a very significant event in this whole account of the Exodus because it's kind of a turning point with Israel. Israel does need help. They, they need some uh, provision of some certain things like metalwork and copper and for uh, tools and instruments and weapons. And the Midianites slash Kenites are going to be used of God to provide that for them. And so that's who Jethro is. Jethro is Moses' father. You know, nothing happens by accident. Uh, Moses has been out on the backside of the desert for 40 years of his life. Who would have thought, right? How would he have known that God was going to bring him back into Egypt to bring his people out? He's going to meet up with his father-in-law again, who, by the way, is going to bring his wife, Moses' wife, and two sons to him. And through Jethro, God is going to provide, through these Midianites, through these Kenites, things that his people need. Moses shares with Jethro and with these folks all that God had done to the Egyptians, how the Lord had delivered them. And then after these events, God then leads his chosen people to the next place for them, which is Mount Sinai. So that's the account. That's what happened. Now you're familiar with the connection there between the Bible stories and Rephidim. We've spoken on this podcast in the past about the location of Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, that's the topic of our featured video in this episode, using the what we call Exodus pottery. All of these things based upon chronology, not just someone going out in the wilderness and finding something that looks like something and saying, oh, wow, this must be. No, using chronology, finding the pottery uh, and the pottery that dates to the right time that is of the right kind for our story of the Exodus. Dr. Ardsma has made the discovery of the true Mount Sinai over 27 years ago, nearly 30 years ago. There have been other sites along the route that have been identified as well, completely dependent on having the correct biblical chronology. At that time, almost 30 years ago, Dr. Arzma also proposed a possible location of the biblical Rephidim due to the fact that he had found Mount Sinai. And then he saw this place that he said back then very likely could be Rephidim. Let me just read you a quote from that article 27 years ago. Quote, there is another settlement where Exodus pottery has been found, which is a little less than a day's journey to the southwest of Mount Yeraham, which, by the way, is the true Mount Sinai. It is known today as Bear Resisim. 
The obvious phonetic similarity and other factors cause me to propose that bear recessim is the biblical rephidim. I suggest that the combination of evidence from Resisim and Yeroham make a very strong case for their identification with Rephidim and Sinai. Now, again, that was written 27 years ago as Dr. Arzma was first putting the pieces of this puzzle together, having discovered the missing 1,000 years in biblical chronology. Now, in March of this year, 2023, he has released a new article entitled The Route of the Exodus, Part 4, The Identification of Rephidim, where this identification has now been firmly established. And we want to encourage you to go to biblicalchronologist.org to the newsletters tab on the left and look that article up and read it for yourself. I just want to make a quick comment about this pottery, this Exodus pottery. Of course, uh, a modern archaeologist is not going to call this pottery Mm -hmm. Exodus pottery. It's from a certain time period, which they even have a little bit of trouble naming the time period because there is so much confusion. Yeah, I guess I should say a lot of trouble in archaeology (laughs) trying to really name this time period. And the reason is because it's so mysterious. And they don't really know who these people were, uh, where they were coming from or going to. And so on Twitter, for example, if I make reference, you know, interacting with somebody that these were the Israelites, these mysterious peoples, they'll immediately respond and say, those weren't the Israelites. Right. And I usually reply by saying, if they weren't the Israelites, they certainly did a lot of the same things the Israelites did in the way that the Bible describes, in the places that the Bible describes. And of course, the timing is not what's traditional there for the chronology, but knowing that these are the Israelites and then reading the work of the archaeologists is just fascinating. Yes, it is. So then the question is, can we know the exact location of these awesome events we talked about a minute ago that happened to these Israelites described in the Bible? Can we know this place called Rephidim, where it's at, where this this happened? So Dr. Arzman reports that there are a number of things that attracted his attention to what is today called Bear Rephidim as potentially being the actual location of Rephidim. The first thing that attracted his attention to this was, of course, the Exodus pottery. That's of utmost importance. Is there chronological evidence that these people were at this place? So that's the first thing. Of course, there's Exodus pottery here. The second thing, as we've already mentioned, the similarity in the pronunciation of Resisim and Rephidim. Of course, that sounds very similar. And then the third thing was the fact that Bear Resisim is in a very appropriate location relative to the true Mount Sinai, Mount Yeroham. Now, if you go to the actual newsletter and download it, it's for free, PDF newsletter right there on Dr. Arzma's site, you can see a map that shows these locations and where they are in relation to each other. The biblical record of the Israelites' encampment at Rephidim is quite extensive for a biblical account. It is all of Exodus 17 and all of Exodus 18, two chapters. So there are a number of things that we can look for to identify this location as the true Rephidim. Of course, this also means that there are a number of ways to falsify the location as well. So as we spoke of in our Bible story earlier, let's let's mention these again. We learned that Israel had a desperate need for water at this location and that the need was met by God when 
God instructed Moses to strike the rock with a staff. And we'll come back to that, that account in just a moment. We then learn of the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites. And then, of course, we learn of the arrival of Moses' Midianite, Kenite father-in-law, Jethro, uh, bringing Moses' wife and two sons with him. So let's go through these. So we're going through this in light of the archaeology that has been done at Bear Resisim, which is being proposed as the biblical Rephidim. Right. And in this, we are going to uh, gain some very interesting insight into these biblical accounts. Yes, exactly. So let's take it, first of all, with the three distinct ethnic groups that should be found in this place. So have the archaeologist uncovered and discovered three distinct groups, just like the Bible account says. This needs to be there. Israelites, Amalekites, and Midianites, or Canaanites. Right. Now, how would they be distinct? You know, for us lay people, it's hard to understand that, but they would have had uh, distinct pottery styles from each other. They would have had different types of dwellings that right. they would have constructed for themselves, which, of course, we know the Israelites lived in tents. But guess what? The Midianites didn't. Right. And uh, some of them were into metalworks. And so the archaeologists are very good at un covering all of these clues, which um, would be totally unfamiliar to most of us. Right. So first of all, we have the Midianites. Let's just talk about them first because the evidence for them is in abundance. These families, these Midianites, they lived in and they would build circular stone dwellings, which, of course, if you're going to live in stone dwellings, they're going to last for a very long time. As a matter of fact, these dwellings are the main focus of archaeologists at these sites due to the fact that their dwellings are still somewhat present. Remember that the Israelites lived in tents. And so if, you're, if you live in tents, they're not going to be around for very long. Well, for one thing, you're going to be taking them with you, but they're, um, if they're left behind, they're not going to last. They're going to decay over thousands of years. If you live in stone dwellings, they're going to be there. At least some remnant of, the, of those dwellings are going to be there. And these dwellings are at all these locations or a lot of these locations where Exodus pottery is found. It's true at Mount Yeroham, which we've talked about before, as well as other identified locations. Right. And so what what you were mentioning there is that the archaeologist focuses on these circular dwellings and says, who were these people? And they think that's the main. That's the main encampments. Um, not realizing that the whole plain was covered with tents, which, of course, the pottery points to more of that kind of thing. But the actual houses that they're able to uncover are There may these. have been literally a few dozen Midianites. True. And there are millions of right. Israelites right. and some Egyptians mixed in all around. But yet we can't see that in the archaeology as much. We see the pottery. But these circular stone dwellings are the main finds of the archaeologists. So, so the Midianites uh, living in the stone dwellings, I guess it's a little funny to think about somebody coming through the area and moving their stone houses with them. Uh, but the archaeology is showing that these were hastily constructed stone dwellings, right. and this is where the copper uh, metalworks were found within those dwellings. Uh, so the Midianites would arrive, and then they would erect these types of uh, houses, you know, temporary to stay in while they were at the site. So that's what was happening with those people. Right. 
the Midianites, the Kenite evidence is in abundance. Then we have the Amalekites. Now, there's not such an abundance of evidence for this particular group. Remember, they came in and did battle with the Israelites, but the archaeologists do speak of, specifically William Deaver, I believe, here, here, for example, is a quote from him. Small groups of early Bronze Age II sherds, that's pottery shards, are found here and there on the bedrock. There's some other quotes as well in the article, but that's just one example, and that is giving evidence to this ethnic group. And then, of course, we have Israel. And as we've already mentioned, we find our Exodus pottery identifying Israel having exited out from Egypt. That is found at this location. So, Evidence of all three of these biblically required people groups are found together at this location at the right time. Now, let's talk about this thing of water from the rock. Now, this is going to be a big deal in Rephidim. As we said before, the Bible tells how God told Moses to strike a rock at a certain location. And when Moses obeyed this command, water comes out of the rock. Now, of course, the Lord could have provided water for his people just out of nowhere, cause a rock, a dry rock, to gush forth water. God can do anything he wants to do. But what if God just simply chose to use part of his natural world to supply the need for these people? Would that be any less of a miracle? And in a sense, you could see it as God being good to us in our day so that we could potentially go back and find the reality of an event such as this having taken place in the real world, demonstrating the validity of the scriptural account. And that's what we want to show and demonstrate here today on our podcast with Rephidim. If God chose to use his natural world to provide water for these people at this particular place that the Bible speaks of, then one possible explanation of getting water by striking a rock— would be near-surface water underneath a layer of rock. Now, it's going to be pretty amazing if we tell these folks on the podcast that in this location, there happens to be near-surface water right under the rocks that could have been struck and water could have come forth. Yes, that would be amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, we're pretty much used to, you know, you go somewhere and look around, and if you don't see any water, then there's not any water unless you, you know— dig an expensive well or something. But um, for there to have been water for those people in that location and they not have known it and God miraculously bring it forth is kind of incredible. And we can't really wrap our minds around it until it's explained. Well, this is exactly what we are going to tell you. The Lord would have, of course, known if there was the presence of near-surface water in this area. And believe it or not, the, now here's a big word for you, the geomorphology, that is the study of the physical features of the surface of the earth, the geological structures, of bare recessim uniquely exhibits this characteristic. Of course, some things are going to change over thousands of years, but let me read you a quote from an archaeologist. Now, again, I want to stress something Jennifer mentioned a little bit ago. Archaeologists that we quote are not in any way trying to validify the biblical accounts. This guy named William Deaver is not trying to say that this is Israel, that that the biblical account of Rephidim is true. 
they have no clue as to what they're looking at. So they're just reporting on what they find. But here's what William Deaver says about Bear Resisim. Bear Resisim was located at precisely the one point along the wadi. That's, by the way, a wadi is a ravine or a channel that is dried up, except in the rainy season. So it's like a riverbed, dried up riverbed. Bear Resisim was located at precisely the one point along the wadi where the water-bearing shale layers rise to within three meters or 10 feet of the surface. The modern well that is here that gives its name to the site is located here, where even the shallow pits or tumuli dug by Bedouin can easily reach water. That's from William Deaver, Bear Russisim in the New Encyclopedia of Archaeological Excavations in the Holy Land, Volume 1. So according to the archaeologists, the shale in this location, and by the way, shale is soft, sedimentary, fragile slabs of rock, is covered by 10 feet of what's called alluvium. You can read more about this in Dr. Arjman's article. Alluvium is clay and silt and sand and gravel or similar material that would be deposited by running water. So it's more than likely that this sediment has accumulated. I mean, it's been 5,000 years. Has accumulated over these the top of the previously exposed shale layers due to the lack of rainfall. Now that's documented in history of that part of the world that there's been a lack of rainfall in that part of the world. So, in the mind of our listener at this point, I'm sure they're listening, thinking. So, are you telling me that there's this archaeological site that Dr. Ardsma proposes? is the biblical Rephidim, and this is where Moses brought water out of a rock, and in this place in the desert, there's known to be water underneath of rocks? Like, is that is that what we're saying? Yes, we are saying that very thing. Well, nah, can't be Rephidim. <laughs> uh, how often do you find these water, you know, these rocks covering yeah, right, up water right. in the desert? It's just it's incredible. It's amazing. And I mean, there's so many things here that line up the location of it to the Mount Sinai and, and on and on. We, we could go. I know I'm running through this fast because there's so much information here to get through. So you need to know a little bit about groundwater to understand the significance of all of this. Um, I, I don't know anything much about groundwater, but boy, it's nice to have the internet these days. And Dr. Arzma has put some, some information within his newsletter. So here's the most important thing to know in the present instance. And this is taken from an introduction to this topic of groundwater on the internet. Quote, groundwater in aquifers between layers of poorly permeable rock, such as clay or shale, may be confined under pressure. If such a confined aquifer is tapped by, for instance, a well, water will rise above the top of the aquifer and may even flow from the well onto the land surface. Water confined in this way is said to be under artesian, sometimes that's pronounced artesian, but artesian pressure, and the aquifer is called an artesian aquifier. You, you may have heard of an artesian well in the past, and that's what we're talking about here. From Dr. Arzma's article, artesian pressure results when water soaks into the ground at higher elevations, on hills for example, and is subsequently trapped under impermeable layers at lower elevations, in valleys for example, 
Nahal Resisim, that is the seasonal Resisim River, the, the wadi there, is flanked by hills. Meanwhile, its bed contains impermeable shale layers. This immediately suggests the possibility that it was water-bearing shale in the Nahal Resisim, again the dried-up riverbed, which Moses struck with his staff, fracturing it and allowing water trapped under artesian pressure to come out of it. Now, if this is correct, then the miracle being recorded here is not that water was made to come from nowhere and flow out of a dry rock, but rather appears to be that God told Moses precisely where to find this water and how to get at it. Exodus 17, 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. This seems clearly to be saying that God would stand on the specific rock that Moses should strike, knowing where the water was, and of course that's what happened. Moses strikes it, and water comes forth. Can you even imagine those Israelite men, the elders, I believe it says Moses struck the rock in front of the elders of Israel, uh, standing there, and Moses strikes this rock, and water begins to bubble up. I mean, the amazement of watching God do that through Moses. There's water underneath these rocks, under the surface of the ground, and the Bible doesn't tell us, um, but it's not hard to imagine that the Israelite men would have taken over and said, there's water under these rocks, our wives, our children are thirsty, our flocks, you know, and done something to open up the water. And in fact, here come the Amalekites to fight them in that wadi bed flanked by those hills, uh, which Probably we're going to talk about. The water source. Yeah, but I mean, we a water source in a dried up desert yeah. uh, is going to be something to fight over. I so, think, you know what I think, Steve? What? I think we're going to have to do a Rephidim part two. Oh, really? Oh, I'm excited about this. Yeah, I, I know. Right. I hate I to stop right. your um, your. <laughs> well, yes. Seminar that halfway a, through. That is a good idea. Let's pause here on it because we have a lot more to talk about. Some of you, if you know the scriptures well and you know the verse, will understand that it says, uh, well, let's just say this, a complication arises because the verse says at Horeb. Now, often when we talk about at Horeb, we, when we talk about Horeb, we're talking about Mount Sinai. So how does this work? Well, Let's get Let's into get that, into next, that month. next time. Yes. Yeah, because they were obviously not at Horeb. No, nope. uh, that was their next stop on their journey. And uh, what does what could that mean? We don't have a good we, answer for this. Yeah, there's more. There's plenty more to come on this right. Rephidim topic. But I want our listeners to be able to absorb what they've heard so far. You know, archaeology shows us three distinct people groups at Bear Resisim. The pottery dates to the date predicted by the new chronology. And we have shale uh, with water sources, aquifers underneath the ground um, that you can read about right there on Wikipedia today. At a very place where there's Exodus pottery, Amalekite evidence, the circular stone dwellings of the Midianites, Midianites, all in the proper time frame when the chronology is corrected. Too many things are adding up. All on the route that makes sense. Right. Um, Not 700 miles away from Mount Sinai or anything like that, but right in the real world desert there in the central Negev 
So incredible. And if you just can't wait till next month, we encourage you to go download a copy of Dr. Arzma's article, The Route of the Exodus Part 4, The Identification of Rephidim. And let me just mention, we already did mention it, but I do have a video out called The True Mount Sinai. If you get the show notes, the video is right there, or you can go to truthintime.org. And um, we also have a Vimeo channel, and you're welcome to go watch that location of the true Mount Sinai. Moving on to our featured product, we have not yet talked about this product here on the podcast, uh, which is something that, of course, the biblical chronologist would need to offer you, and that is time charts. These are vertical timelines uh, that you can purchase from the Biblical Chronologist, download as PDF files right there on the website. We'll provide you a link there in the show notes. I downloaded three of them that were of interest to me. There are a total of nine different time charts available there, highlighting different parts of secular history and integrating it with the biblical history. This is truly the uh, benefits of decades of research, and we can reap the benefits of it by looking at these time charts and seeing uh, contained therein answers to big questions that have been a problem for uh, biblical history for a long time. Each event is at its proper date. You can see the harmonization, and they're great reference tool, study tool. Um, I would say um, high schoolers, you know, could benefit from these all the way up to anybody who's a student of the Bible and wants to see these things in the real world. Each one features different parts of history, as I mentioned, and they're not overly cluttered. Some timelines have so much information that your mind is kind of blown just trying to look at it. These are not that way. They, they are uncluttered, just getting across the main points and just giving you the chronology there um, of God's works in history right alongside the findings of the secular scientist. And where can folks go to get these time charts? They can go to thebiblicalchronologist.org. There is a link right there, actually, even on the home page where you can easily navigate over to the time charts. There is one available for free, and then there are quite a few others available uh, for just a few dollars each. So here at The Biblical Chronologist, we are saying that if you get the chronology right, you can go all the way back to before the flood. Dr. Arzma has spent many years doing the research to try to understand how these people were living to such long ages. Dr. Arzma has come to the conclusion that this is a simple vitamin deficiency disease that men and women, boys and girls are suffering with. Yes, that is our central hypothesis that aging is fundamentally a vitamin deficiency disease. Right. Uh, we are not saying that we just need to eat more broccoli and we won't age right. and die the way we do because the catch here is that these vitamins went missing from the Earth's environment after Noah's flood. Right. So these are two newly discovered vitamins 
not anything that we are presently getting in our diets. And so because of this, we are giving examples of other vitamin deficiency diseases to show that when your body does not have a necessary vitamin, it breaks down and it breaks down terribly. And if aging is simply a vitamin deficiency disease of a previously unknown vitamin that we're not getting in our diets, restoring that vitamin into our diets, the theory holds, and it seems to be showing that aging can be prevented even possibly cured. The research is ongoing, so some of these questions do not have a definitive answer yet, but it's pretty well documented through the research here that these two vitamins did go missing after Noah's flood, and without them, the human body is not in a good place. Right. Uh, So today, our lesson in Aging 101 is Lesson 6. And we are talking about the example of vitamin B3 and pellagra. Right. Last month, we talked about vitamin C deficiency. Yes. And what comes from that. And the horror of scurvy. It's a sad tale, but something we can learn from and maybe aren't familiar with. Same thing with vitamin B3 and pellagra. Pellagra. Has anybody hardly even heard of pellagra? Probably not. But it was a real thing. It is a real thing. Here's the history of it in the history of even our own country, even within the 1900s. We don't have to go back very far in history to find out what happens when you don't get a necessary vitamin. Here's the story. In the early 1900s, a mysterious disease began to cause immense suffering in the southern United States. They didn't know where it was coming from. It was called the sickness of the four Ds, diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and death. Uh, Many theories were advanced about where this disease was coming from. Can you even imagine if your loved one started to break out in skin lesions and the horrible dread in your heart that they were going to go down this path of suffering and possibly even die and not knowing how did they get this. Um, Some said that it was coming from insects. They were getting bitten. Some were saying other theories that it was an infectious disease. They caught it from somebody else. They did not know that they had unintentionally eliminated a necessary vitamin from their diets. And like last month, we're going to see many similarities between this vitamin deficiency disease of pellagra and the disease of aging. So in the late 1920s, the ravages of pellagra were striking more than 200,000 people per year in the southern U.S., Now, only about 3% of cases died from it, but the suffering was extremely great. One article I read said many of the people suffering would likely have wished for death because it was so awful. It would start as skin lesions that left telltale marks on the face and the skin would crust over on the body and the symptoms would become mental General malaise would turn into serious depression, and in the worst cases, it would become dementia. These people were committed to asylums, and some even died there because they had completely lost their mind. I cannot really 
tell you the extent of my shock earlier on in the aging research um, when I learned that there were vitamin deficiency diseases that could lead to dementia. That just really amazed me because dementia, of course, what do we associate that with? With aging now. Right. But here we have a vitamin B3 deficiency that literally would cause dementia and people would get put into insane asylums because of it. So we certainly can understand that if we are not getting a nutrient that our bodies need and it's causing aging, that could certainly play a role in these things like dementia. So back to our story, leading health experts met to try to find out where this was coming from. Some thought, like I said, an insect, some thought it was bacterial. The leading theory was, interestingly, that it came from spoiled corn. A lot of corn was consumed in the Southern states. It was a cheap resource. Joseph Goldberger, whose name is forever etched in the pages of history now, Joseph Goldberger advanced the theory that it could be the absence of something in the diet that was causing pellagra. This was a brand new idea, really, even with the history of things like scurvy. Quoting from the SCEncyclopedia.org, South Carolina, chief advocate of this novel idea that the absence of something could cause disease was Joseph Goldberger. Because his notion assaulted Southern pride and flew in the face of conventional wisdom, it faced a wall of opposition. But in a series of brilliant field research in Mississippi and South Carolina from 1914 to 1916, his ideas won general, if grudging, acceptance. So, you know, why would this assault Southern pride. It's kind of weird to think about. Don't you tell me this is something we're not getting in our diet. Well, the reason was because it was associated with poverty that would lead to pellagra. Because if the people didn't have the money to buy the proper foods, they would more easily fall prey to pellagra. And it actually even became a political issue. The U.S. government wanted it to be some kind of infectious disease rather than a nutritional problem due to poverty because they didn't want that reflection on the economic state of their country. It's pretty bad if your people are dying of diseases because they're not they're too poor to buy proper food. And what were the were the years of this again? Early 1900s um yeah, by the 1920s. Okay. They had over 200,000 people a year. Huh. coming down with it. So here's what had happened. Unbeknownst to the Southern people that were experiencing the pellagra, uh, they were missing an essential nutrient, a vitamin out of their diet. Um, that vitamin is what we call today vitamin B3 and niacin is another name for it. Now, how are they doing this? How is this happening? Well, uh, the family farm, the homestead type of lifestyle had changed um, and lost the diversity of growing different foods and uh, raising different animals. And it went to only a cotton production. And so 
Uh, They were not able to obtain foods from their family farms anymore. And combining that with the poverty problem, it led to a very restricted diet. They just didn't have the money to buy meats and eggs and different sources where your body normally gleans this essential vitamin from. And so the restricted diets, um, presumably a lot of cornmeal, which is not a good source of vitamin B3, um, and just a very small selection of foods was causing them to not be able to get that essential vitamin of B3. And so this just blows my mind that people were being committed to insane asylums because of the lack of vitamin B3, something that was entirely curable and preventable, but their lifestyle changed and it was deficient in this absolutely essential vitamin and nobody could put those pieces together very well. And so all these people suffered so terribly and some even died. So it wasn't even until, you know, the 1930s that anybody knew what niacin was, but they were able to solve the problem sooner than that. And Goldberger was able to find out that brewer's yeast would prevent and cure pellagra. So I can only assume brewer's yeast must be rich in niacin, right? (laughs) It was cheap, it was abundant, and there were literally government programs that were distributing brewer's yeast to the southern populations to help prevent and even cure, cure those who had pellagra. I mean, you know, consume this brewer's yeast and you'll get better. Now, today, the government has a role still. Most people don't, we don't even think about this today, but we are, (laughs) however you want to look at it, we are force fed Vitamins. Yeah. I mean, if we buy food at Walmart, grocery, or Food Lion, or wherever it is you get your food. Right. And it has in it already, it's been fortified yeah. with vitamins that are necessary that if you did not get, you would contract deficiency diseases. Yeah. The government has a role in protecting its citizens from falling prey to deficiency diseases. So we don't hear about things like pellagra. We don't hear about things like scurvy in the West today because we get the vitamins that we need. Yep. Vitamin fortified for your for your own good, for your children's healthy development. We're very blessed now to be able to produce foods and add in the vitamins that we need uh, that we may not otherwise get enough. So... Um, Back to our talk of gardening at the beginning. It kind of plays a role in this story because once they found out about the brewer's yeast, that helped greatly. Another thing that helped to put pellagra on the decline was that the mass production of cotton began to falter due to a national depression and due to the insect called the boll weevil. And so families began to diversify again and stopped growing only cotton and began to produce more of their own foods. But it definitely helped to um, eradicate pellagra when their lifestyle changed again. So that's very interesting to me, you know, that growing their own food on the land uh, was something that played a role in this horrible story in history. So we can learn so many lessons from this sad story. But the main point, again, is that lack of a vitamin can cause immense suffering. 
The discovery of the anti-aging vitamins shows us that our bodies do need some nutritional elements that nobody is getting today. So returning to the family farm and growing a garden and eating from it is not going to help us with this particular vitamin deficiency disease. Uh, That's not what we're trying to say. We're all for gardening, but that's not going to solve your problem of aging because these particular vitamins are missing from the Earth's environment today. Right. They are specifically called vitamin MEPA, methylphosphonic acid, and MEPIA, methylphosphonic acid. And if you would like to get a hold of some of these vitamins, we here do uh, produce them in the laboratory and mail them out, and you can uh, get on biblicalchronologist.org and get some for yourself or for your family. Please do avail yourself yes. of it. Anything we can do to alleviate suffering. In fact, this takes us right in to our section called I've Got, I've questions. Got questions. Yes, it does. Is it right? Here's the question. Is it right for the Christian to desire to live longer by supplementing the anti-aging vitamins? Isn't this a vain and worldly pursuit? So here we're getting into the theological aspect of the question of anti-aging vitamins. And of course, this is a question many people have, and especially those who understand the Bible and understand the flood and all of these things and aging. Um, Is it right for Christians to desire to live longer by supplementing a vitamin? I'm sure some of our listeners have had that question. I I know they have because many people that we've interacted with over the course of the five or six years since the anti-aging vitamins have been brought to the forefront with the discovery, we've talked to so many people and this inevitably comes up. Right. You know, uh, I'm not sure if it's really right that I should try to do something about aging in my body. Right. I think the first thing I would say, just in light of the discussion we just had there about pellagra, is that if somebody had pellagra or scurvy, uh, we would not hesitate for even a moment to point them in the right direction to help alleviate their suffering and solve their problem. Would it not be wrong the opposite, to hold back from them? Right, to just be quiet about it and think, well, uh, maybe this is God's plan for them to suffer with pellagra and die. Not if you can do something about it. So, you know, we have to go back to the very basics, and this is really my heartbeat, you know, being involved in the work here. I love all the aspects of it, but I am pro-life, and I have been since my earliest days. God is the giver of life, and it's a precious gift. And when we say pro-life, we often think, of course, of the unborn, but I am pro-life for all of life. We know who the giver of life is. Right. Um, and we know where death comes from, and it is not from God. Well, and this also takes us into the to the issue of understanding that solving a problem like aging does not mean all of death is defeated. It's still quite possible to die, <laughs> even if you're taking the anti-aging vitamins. It's more than quite possible. It's Definitive. You're you're going to die eventually. They can't stop bullets. They can't yet, yeah, right? I mean, if war. I mean, we're not talking about immortality here. And I think that we we probably need to say that more and yes, people I need think to understand so. that. Solving a problem like aging, if seeing aging as a disease like scurvy or pellagra, this is not 
immortality. It certainly puts a big dent in death because most people do die of aging. And, and of course, you know, heart problems and mental issues and bodies breaking down. So is that a bad thing? Is that, a, is that something that we should shun? Um, well, no, of course not. And again, we're not talking about immortality here. When I um, explore other aging research that's going on today and try to stay up to date with it a little bit, so often the question, you know, will be asked in the comments to these well-known researchers, how close are we to obtaining immortality? And then the researcher will say, just hang on because it's coming. It's right around the corner. And so they are right there equating aging, solving of aging with living forever. And even though aging is the leading cause of death today, it's certainly not going to cause anyone to live forever. As I was saying there a minute ago, we know God is the giver of life and we know it's our job to steward it because it's a gift. And we do all we can to sustain our own lives, to sustain the lives of others. We never just throw our hands up and say, oh, well, we're just going to die here. We do everything we can to sustain life. We go in to have surgery when we need to have surgery. We we eat healthy. Every time you decide that you're going to count your calories or you're going to take care of your health and get the proper vitamins that you need and not eat uh, as much sugary foods or fatty foods, you are working to extend your lifespan. Um, you exercise. You stop smoking. You wear a seatbelt. You drink water. We don't think that, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this or not. As a matter of fact, we think the opposite. If I don't take care of my health, I'm not taking care of the body that God's given to me. Now, getting back to our question, though, what about this thing of aging? Is it right for people to want to cure that? Does that take us into a different category because of the judgment of God? Right, because, I mean, was aging directly coming from the curse of sin and from God's judgment after Noah's flood? And so we should not interfere with that in any way. Well, then, of course, the answer to that is what problems do we deal with that are not a result of the curse of sin? Right. They're all (laughs) part of the curse of sin. We've been working to overcome issues from the curse of sin since man first fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. Would it ever be wrong to fight against health issues in our bodies, diseases, injuries, to see those as punishment. This is judgment from God for men's sin, so you shouldn't fight against it. Sometimes as a mom, you know, over the years, we've, we've, we're still raising a big family and some days you get tired. And I think to myself, I feel like all I'm doing is going from one, solving one problem to another through the course of the entire day. Right. We got to get a meal on the table. We got to have some clean clothes. We've got to be educated. We've got to make it to this location and that location. We've got to repair the vehicle. We've got to go to the doctor, go to the dentist. We are addressing problems morning till night. And in fact, that's the job that God gave mankind to do at the very beginning. Take dominion of the earth and subdue it. And so looking at aging, yes, it's part of the curse, just like any other sickness or part of God's judgment during the flood, as many other difficulties would have been. But yet we have been commissioned to take dominion and to solve the problems. And mankind is amazingly good at solving problems. It's never easy, but it's part of what we were created to to do. So we wouldn't look at 
this form of suffering called aging and say, well, but this is good. This is from God. This is going to take me to heaven. So I even this if even alone. if there's something I can do about it, I'm not going to I'm not going to interfere with that. In fact, if you're not going to interfere with aging, then we should pretty much never take any medical treatment for anything because the majority of the medical issues we face are aging related. Right. If you get cancer when you're 65 and you don't want to interfere with the aging process, I guess you would just leave your cancer alone. So when do you draw that line? Right. Where do you, do you say, say that's enough? I mean, I've taken that cancer medicine for long enough. I'm getting too old now. The, the truth is when you really think through this, you know, the questions are legitimate. Of course they are. This is new. New ideas. New research, new discovery. Do take time to think through. And we yes. always have to think about these things theologically. But eventually we come to terms with it because even sensibilities come into play. And if someone today, which someone is, saying they found the cure to aging, <laughs> then we all have to decide what we're going to do with that. Right, And so the questions are serious. Of course they are. And we'll wrestle with these things as we always do as humans. But in the end, we come down to doing what is right. Those of us who know the Lord and want to have lives, Jennifer said a minute ago, want to uh, do everything we can to promote life and what is good and true and beautiful. And if God can be glorified in uh, overcoming overcoming this horrible disease of aging, and praise be to his name, and may people be helped. I want to read something that you wrote, Steve. I hope you don't mind if I read this. This was on an email mm -hmm. to uh, somebody that we don't personally know, but somebody who was inquiring about the vitamins. And I just love Steve's words here. I'm going to read this. Taking a vitamin to rid ourselves of the disease of aging and, Lord willing, extend our lives would certainly not be the work of dark forces who seek to kill and destroy, but would be a wonderful gift from the one who said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I personally believe that this world that was cursed when the first Adam fell in the Garden of Eden is now a world that is being redeemed since the second Adam Jesus Christ has come. I believe the anti-aging vitamins are just another victory of life over death in a long string of victories since the cross of Christ. Hmm. Who said that? Good job. Who said it? Me? <laughs> Every I mean, now I, and then we surprise ourselves. <laughs> I, I might sign my own Bible. <laughs> just all, right, All right. Let me give this quote of note. I have been dying to give this quote for months on the podcast, and I have been waiting for the proper place to put it in. Now, this is an anonymous quote. It's very short, but it pretty much sums up all the theology that we just talked about. It says, if you're drowning and a boat comes along, duh, you get in. <laughs> I love the duh. I know. <laughs> <laughs> duh. Yes. Well, yeah, right. And really, that takes us back to what we said a minute ago. We have to sort through these things. Sure. And but sometimes you just get down to a bottom line and it's not complicated at all. It's not complicated. Right. Moving into Helen's view, we are listening to Helen share this month an article that was published in the publication here in Central Illinois called The Prime Life Times. The article is called Learning and Discovery Still Happening at the Old Loda School Building. For Gerald and Helen Ardsma of Loda, Illinois, living the dream means something quite unusual. 
the Ardsmas, both in their upper 60s, actually now in the late 60s, recently moved into a renovated section of the old Loda grade school. The move wasn't prompted by an affinity for old buildings. The building is actually 100 years old this year but by a desire to be on-site for their business and research ventures, which they now conduct in the building. In 2019, the Artsmas purchased the neglected building, which hadn't functioned as a school since 2006. It had been sitting vacant and had fallen prey to vandals for much of the time since the school had closed. The Artsmas had two purposes for purchasing this historic facility. First, they needed more space for Mulberry Lane Farm, a business that ships organic grains throughout the country. Second, they needed additional facilities for Dr. Artsma's research laboratories. Gerald has his PhD from the University of Toronto. He has for decades worked as an independent research scientist who specializes in work concerning the interface of science and the Bible. Longtime Loda residents, the Artsmas moved across town into their new apartment in October 2022. They live in one of the front wings and are thrilled with their new living quarters. More than that, they are very happy to be living at work. Now Helen is available to make grain deliveries at any time of day, and Gerald can make his lab runs early in the morning, late at night, or whenever needed. Area folks are glad to see the property cleaned up and in use. People often share their memories of going to school there. One neighbor told how in bygone days, the double doors to the large hallways were often left open during school hours to keep a breeze flowing through the school, which wasn't air-conditioned. One day, some animals from a nearby farm came wandering down the hallway, causing quite a stir with the school kids. The Arts must plan to further renovate the building. They love badminton, and they hope to build an indoor court in one of the large rooms near the back. They have no plans for retirement, also for a very unusual reason. Dr. Arsmus' recent research has focused on aging. He has discovered two new vitamins he believes are key to fighting and preventing human aging. He and Helen both take these vitamins daily, bottled together as a liquid. As a result, they have found renewed energy and enthusiasm for life. Before the vitamins, I felt as if I were shutting down, Helen says. Now I sleep so much better and am thrilled to be living an active, productive life. Life can sure take some strange twists and turns. I've had my eye on this old building for a long time, but I can't believe that here we are, living our daily lives inside these walls and seeing our work go forward. To learn more about Mulberry Lane Farm, visit www.mulberrylanefarm.com. To learn more about Dr. Ardsma's research, visit www.biblicalchronologist.org or call 217-803-0212. This article was written by our daughter, Jennifer, who handles communications for Ardsma Research and Publishing. It's always great to share with you all that God is doing and has done in our lives. We are enjoying springtime and all the newness it brings. Many blessings to you and yours. Helen. Well, next month will be our final episode in our first year of this podcast. Wow. So stay tuned.
Stay tuned for some special activities we're going to be doing. Celebrating episode 12. Episode 12. Season 1 is wow. wrapping up. Well, thanks for joining us. Hope you have a, are having a great summer. Hey, if you haven't put out a garden this year, maybe we've encouraged you to do that. It's good for you. Put a garden out, get out in the sunshine and if you have dirt. a if you have a yard and it doesn't have a garden in it, what, what are you even are doing? You even doing. <laughs> <laughs> Where did we hear that? I saw that about chickens actually. Okay. But I'll apply it to gardens. <laughs> <laughs> have a great month. We'll Bye see you everybody. Next month. Talk to you later. <laughs>